Section 33, Mother Angela, Angels of the Battlefield by George Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Mother Angela rarely spoke of her services in the war, and with characteristic modesty and humility, frequently endeavored to give others the credit that belonged to herself. She was a writer with an unusual grace and charm of style. One of those who served with her during the war was Sister Mary Josephine. This devoted sister died in 1886, and her death evoked the following dramatic story from the pen of Mother Angela. It was a true story and one of her last contributions to the Ave Maria. Sister Josephine was one among the first of the seventy sisters of the Holy Cross who, during the late Civil War, served the sick and wounded soldiers in the military hospitals of Louisville, Paducah, Cairo, Mound City, Memphis, and Washington City. Those who knew this quiet, gentle, religious, only during the last twenty years of her life, could scarcely realize what courage, even heroicism, animated her during those years of the war spent in the hospitals. We give below one instance among many others. In the summer of 1862, the Confederate Fort Charles on White River was attacked on land by a force under the command of Colonel Fitch of Indiana, and from the water by gunboats commanded by Commodore Davis, in the midst of the battle, the boilers of one of the gunboats exploded, frightfully scalding Captain Kelty and some fifty others. The sufferers, in their agony, leaped into the river, and as they did so, a broadside from Fort Charles poured bullets and grape-shot into their parboiled flesh. The battle ended with the capture of the fort, and the wounded of both sides were taken to Mound City Hospital, a block of some twenty-four unfinished warehouses and storerooms that had been converted into a vast hospital, in which, after some of the great battles in the Mississippi Valley, as many as two thousand patients were treated by a staff of medical officers and nursed by twenty-eight sisters, Sister Josephine being one of them. Colonel Fry, commander of the fort, supposed to be dangerously wounded, and Captain Kelty were of the number brought to Mount City after the surrender of Fort Charles. The latter was a universal favorite of all the men and officers of the Western Flotilla. His sad state, the scalded flesh falling from the bones and pierced with bullets, excited them almost to frenzy. He was tenderly placed in a little cottage away from the main building, and Colonel Fry, with a few other sufferers, was put in a front room in the second story of the hospital under the immediate care of Sister Josephine. The next day the reports spread like wildfire through the hospital, and among the 100 soldiers detailed to guard it that Captain Kelty was dying. The wildest excitement prevailed, and in the frenzy of the moment, Colonel Fry was denounced as his murderer. It was declared that he had given the inhuman order to fire on the scalded men. Everyone firmly believed this, but it was not true. 
Colonel Fry was ignorant of the explosion when the order was given. Sister Josephine, very pale yet wonderfully composed, went to the sister in charge of the hospital to say that all the wounded had just been removed from the room under her care, except Colonel Fry. The soldiers detailed to guard the hospital and the gunboat men had built a rough scaffold in front of the two windows of the room, mounted it with loaded guns, and loudly declared that they would stay there, and the moment they heard of Captain Kelty's death, they would shoot Colonel Fry. And, continued Sister Josephine, the doctor made me leave the room, saying that my life was in danger. He took the key from the door and gave it to Dutch Johnny, telling him that he had entire charge of the man within. Now, Dutch Johnny was one of six brothers. Five had been killed at Belmont. Johnny was so badly wounded and crippled in the same battle that he was useless for active service and so left to help in the hospital. But one idea possessed him. In revenge for his brother's death, he intended to kill five Confederates before he died. In this fearful state of affairs, the sister in charge went to the Surgeon General of the staff, begging him to see that no murder be committed. Dr. Franklin answered that he was powerless to control events and that the captain of the company guarding the hospital was absent. Then, said the sister, I must call my 27 sisters from the sick. We will leave the hospital and walk to Cairo, a distance of three miles. In vain did the doctor represent to her the sad state of all the patients she was leaving. She would not consent to remain in a house where murder would soon be committed except on one condition, that the hospital would give her the key of Colonel Fry's room, and that the sisters have the care and entire control of the patient. But, expostulated the doctor, it will be at the risk of your lives, for if Captain Kelty dies, and I see no hopes of his recovery, no power on earth can restrain those men from shooting Colonel Fry. Oh, doctor, she answered, I have too much faith in the natural chivalry of every soldier, be he from north or south of Mason and Dixon's line, to fear he would shoot a poor wounded man while a sister stood near him. Seeing the sisters would leave if this request was not granted, the doctor sent for Dutch Johnny, took the key from him, and gave it to the sister. The latter called for Sister Josephine, and both went in haste to the room of the wounded man. As they turned the key and opened the door, a fearful scene was before them. Colonel Fry lay in a cot. His arms, both broken, were strapped up with cords fastened to the ceiling. One broken leg was strapped to the bed. Only his head seemed free. As he turned it and glared fiercely as he thought upon another foe, he seemed like some wild animal at bay and goaded to madness. Before Sister Josephine had been forced to leave the room, she had closed the windows and lowered the blinds. But her successor, Dutch Johnny, had changed all this. He had rolled up the blinds and thrown up the lower sashes, and there, on the raised platform, not fifty feet from him, Colonel Fry could see the faces and hear the voices of the soldiers and gunboat men shouting every few minutes for him to be ready to die, for they would shoot him as soon as they heard of Captain Kelty's death. Very quickly and gently did Sister Josephine speak to the wounded man, moistening his parched lips, 
with a cooling drink, giving what relief she could to the poor tortured body, and assuring him that she and the other sister would not leave him, so he need not fear that the soldiers would fire while they remained. When these men saw the sisters in the room, they begged them to leave, even threatened, but to no purpose, brave noble sister Josephine and her companion stood at their post all through that long afternoon and far into the night, and they prayed, perhaps more earnestly than they ever prayed before, that Captain Kelty would not die, for, in spite of all their assuring words to Colonel Fry, they did not feel so very certain that their lives would be safe among frenzied men, bent on their taking revenge into their own hands. In the meantime, it became known that Captain Kelty was a Catholic, a convert, though for many years he had neglected his religious duties. A messenger was sent to Cairo to bring Father Welsh to the dying man. When he came, Captain Kelty was in delirium, and the father could only give him extreme unction. Soon after about nine o'clock, he sank into a quiet sleep. He awoke perfectly conscious near midnight, made his confession, received Holy Communion, and took some nourishment. The doctor said all danger was over, and a messenger ran in breathless haste to spread the glad tidings. The excited soldiers fired a few blank cartridges as a parting salvo, jumped from the scaffold, and were seen no more. The rest of the night, good sister Josephine took care of her patient undisturbed by any serious fear that both might be sent into eternity before morning. When the naval officers, who the night before had looked as they feared their last look on the living face of Captain Kelty, went up the next day from Cairo and found him out of danger, they laughed and cried with joy. In a whisper, Captain Kelty asked them to be silent for a moment and listen to him. In a voice trembling with weakness, he said, while I thank these good doctors for all they have done, I must testify, and they will bear me out in what I say. It was not their skill nor any earthly power that brought me back from the brink of the grave, but the saving and life-giving sacraments of the Catholic Church. Colonel Fry and Captain Kelty had long known each other. Both were naval officers until, at the beginning of the war, Captain Fry left the service and was made Colonel Fry in the Confederate Army. As soon as Captain Kelty was well enough to learn what had passed, he declared Colonel Fry was guiltless of the barbarity of which he had been accused, and Sister Josephine was made the bearer to her patient of all the delicacies sent to Captain Kelty, and which he insisted on sharing with Colonel Fry. As soon as Captain Kelty could travel, he was taken to his home in Baltimore. For his bravery, he was made Commodore, and placed in command at Norfolk, but he was maimed for life. His right hand and arm, all shriveled and wasted, hung lifeless by his side. When able to take such a journey alone, he went all the way back to Cairo to see again and thank those sisters who he said under God had saved his life in a double sense. He remained until his death a most fervent Catholic. Colonel Fry, after many months of suffering, also recovered. He was paroled and returned to his home in New Orleans. There he became a Catholic, often declaring that good sister Josephine's bravery and devotedness during that day and night of torture and agony, followed by months of long suffering, were eloquent sermons that he could not resist. 
A few years after the close of the war, he was one of the leaders of that rash band of adventurers who invaded Cuba. His fate is well known. With those under his command, he was captured and executed. But it is not so well known that he profited by the days spent in prison in instructing those with him, and many were converted to the holy faith that first came to him through Sister Josephine. Twenty-three years to the very month passed away, when quietly and calmly, as in the discharge of hospital duties, this good sister, strengthened by the sacraments of the church, literally fell asleep in our Lord a few days after the close of the annual retreat at which she had assisted. Owing to the intense heat of the weather, it was deemed necessary to advance the hour of burial from six o'clock in the morning to eight o'clock on the previous evening. Scarce ever was a procession so affecting. The sisters, more than three hundred in number, all bearing lighted tapers, the reverend chaplains, and the venerable Father Soren, Superior General, C.S.C., followed the remains of Sister Josephine through the beautiful grounds of St. Mary's to the cemetery. The moon shone as brightly on her lifeless body as it had shone years ago through the open window on her brave, gentle form when she saved from death or insanity the wounded prisoner. Of the four persons most interested in that night of agony and torture in the vast military hospital on the banks of the Ohio, but one now remains, Sister Josephine's companion. May the three gone to eternity remember her before God. The sole survivor of that dreadful episode and the historian of the event has also gone to her reward. The prayers of innumerable persons that have benefited by her charity and goodness ascend to the skies, coupled with the hope that Mother Angela will not forget those she has left behind. End of section 33